We've been doing this series of messages on the Sermon on the Mount. And right in the very middle of the Sermon on the Mount is the teaching of Jesus on uh, prayer. Last week, we talked about the negative instructions he gave, where he says, don't be like the pagans who, you know, babble on and, uh, you know, think they're, they're heard because of the many words that they use. And he gave us some negative instructions about prayer. But he also gave positive instructions, and I said last week we'd look at those this morning. The positive instruction is essentially that Jesus teaches us how to pray uh, by giving us what has been called uh, the Lord's Prayer. Over the last little while, we've been repeating the Lord's Prayer as a part of our worship time. For some of you that might be new, it depends on what kind of uh, church traditions you come from, some churches uh, repeat the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis. Others uh, rarely or if ever repeat the Lord's Prayer. And I guess the reason is, the question is, uh, are these words that Jesus gave us kind of a rigid outline uh, of words that we are to repeat uh, verbatim as he taught us? Or uh, are they more of a summary outline of the kind of things that we are to pray? I would suggest that it's not something that is to be only repeated verbatim because if you look at the New Testament and the other example of the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11, the words are different. So obviously the gospel writers didn't believe that you had to do it com completely by rote. On the other hand, I think there is some value of us from time to time repeating the Lord's Prayer because it reminds us of what Jesus taught us and it gives us some perspective on what and how we ought to pray. And so I, I'm okay with re repeating the Lord's Prayer from time to time as a way of just reminding us of what Jesus taught us and how we are to pray. Uh, others have suggested that, while well, this isn't really the Lord's Prayer because he's teaching the disciples and it's the disciples' prayer because that's who he was teaching. Uh, really, the Lord's Prayer is in John chapter 17 where you have his high priestly prayer and others call that the Lord's Prayer. I don't get too concerned about what we call it, uh, whether it's the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer. I don't think that's important. I do think, however, it's important that we understand the thrust of what Jesus was trying to teach us as we look at the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer, whichever you want to call it. So if you have a Bible or your text on your electronic device, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6 and verses 9 and following where we have the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. Just a quick overview of the entire prayer before we dive into it section by section. None of the uh, it's interesting, about halfway through the first half of the, of the prayer, uh, the pronouns are your. Uh, the focus is on the, our Father, uh, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then halfway through, the pronouns change and it becomes us. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, forgive us for our debts or our sins. Uh, lead us not into temptation. 
and deliver us from evil. So the prayer is divided into, into two parts by, by the pronouns. John Stott says that the first half expresses burning concern for God's glory because it focuses on who God is and what his agenda is. The second half is a humble dependence upon his grace as we look at what our perspective is and what we are seeking as we go into prayer. So that's kind of the overview. Now let's look at it phrase by phrase and see how it unfolds. First of all, in verse 9, it speaks about God's person. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father, this is the very core and foundation of prayer. Because of who God is and because of our relationship with him as his children, we have the possibility of access to God because of the nature of that relationship. This is a unique relationship that's really not found in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is called Father, but very sparingly, only 15 times in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, when he's called Father, God is really honored as the Creator. In Micah chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Is not he your Father? Has not our God created us? And when we talk about God as our Heavenly Father, Oftentimes we say God is the father of all people and all people are his children. Well, that's true in a sense in that we have been created by him and therefore he is the father of all humanity. But there's a difference in the way the use of father is in the New Testament. Jesus introduces a new kind of relationship. He uses the, time, the name father 170 times, Jesus alone in the New Testament. He begins by talking about his intimate relationship with his father, but then he extends that and he says that we also have God as our heavenly father in a unique relationship. You remember in John chapter 1 verses 12 where, where it says he came to his own and his own didn't receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the privilege to be the children of God. We are God's kids. We are God's children. And because we are God's children, we have a unique way to, of access into the very presence of God in prayer. There's a story told of Abraham Lincoln in the White House and his chief of staff saw a little boy walk into the White House, and he said he wanted to go into the Oval Office. And he said, well, you can't do that. And uh, he quizzed the little boy a little bit more, and the little boy said, well, I'm uh, Abraham Lincoln's son. Oh, that makes all the difference in the world. Welcome to the Oval Office. Because of who he was in relationship to his father, he had access to enter into the Oval Office and spend time with his father. I think the idea of God as our Heavenly Father not only gives us the reality of access into the presence of God, 
but it also gives us a sense of how we are to enter into that relationship and how we can trust in that relationship. If you look at the rest of the text, if you look at chapter 6, verse 32, it talks about the fact that we can trust in our Heavenly Father. For the pagans run after all these things. He's talking about uh, the things that you would like you know, uh, in life. And he says, your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. He calls them your Heavenly Father. And then as you moved on to chapter 7, uh, the text begins in verse 7 talking about ask and you shall, and it will be given you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door is open. Then it goes on, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven gives good gifts to those who ask him. The nature of our relationship and the love of God our Father gives us the foundation that whatever comes our way is something that is good because of the love of the Father for us. Therefore, we come to the Lord with childlike trust and faith and confidence. We can come boldly to the throne of grace, knowing that God loves us, knowing that he has our best interest in mind, and that he is our Heavenly Father. And as a little kid, we can come to our Father and ask him what's on our heart. Our Father, in heaven, in heaven is much more than a postal address. It's not about where God is or geography. It's more about authority. The scriptures tie the idea of heaven with the place or with the seat of authority and dominion. If Father reveals the intimacy that we can have, heaven expresses the authority of the one to whom we go. The psalmist speaks of he that sits in the heaven as the one who rules on high. So if Father tells us about accessibility, in heaven tells us about our Father's capability. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the one who we can be confident can respond to what we ask. Therefore, as Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, we're not rash with our mouth or let our hearts be hasty to utter just anything before God. For God is in heaven and we are on earth and therefore our words are few. In other words, we think about what we're going to say to God because of his dominion and his authority. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It was interesting as I was reflecting on that phrase, I remembered a song by Bill and Gloria Gaither. Now I've, you know, I've identified my age. Gloria, Bill and Gloria Gaither. There's something about that name. Jesus, 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 there's just something about 
that name. I hear you humming. Jesus, Master, Savior, like a fragrance after the rain. We do know there's something significant about the name of Jesus because of who he is and what he has done. And we think about what Paul wrote in Philippians when he was describing the work of Jesus Christ in his incarnation and that he emptied himself and came to this earth and died his death on the cross and then was risen again. And it says, at the name of Jesus, every tongue shall, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Father. There is something about the name of Jesus that calls us to make it hollow. Hallowed be your name. We don't use that word hallowed very much. But essentially it means let your name be treasured and loved more than any other. There's an interesting section in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament where Ezekiel talks about how the name of God was profaned by the children of Israel. Uh, and let me just read it. Verse uh, 18 of Ezekiel 36. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land uh, and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, These are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave the land. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they went. And the distribution of the children of Israel as a result of their sin was because of the profaning of the name of the Lord. So when we pray, Hallowed be your name, we're asking that we ourselves will not be disrespectful or tarnish the reputation of our Heavenly Father. Dallas Willard, in his book, Divine Conspiracy, has an interesting take on this. Uh, he connects this phrase with the loving, admiring relationship a child has with their parent or with their father. Oftentimes, uh, a little child thinks that their parent can do no wrong. My dad can beat your dad kind of stuff. Uh, and, and they hold them in very, very high esteem. But somewhere along the line, they hear someone say something disparaging about their, their parent. And they're wounded by that because they suddenly realize that this person does not hold in high esteem their parents as they do. And Willard says that this is kind of the, what is being said here, is that this request that God's name be honored to be hallowed is like the adoring child who is jealous for their parents' reputation. I wonder if we are. Are we jealous of the Lord's reputation? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. All of this speaks to the person of our Heavenly Father, and we begin our prayer by understanding and writing ourselves in relationship to Him. Then we come to verse 10, the second movement in the prayer, 
where it speaks not only of God's person, but now of God's purpose. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Kingdom in the Bible is a big topic. And we think about how we understand the nature of God's kingdom. And certainly God rules and reigns uh, over all of creation and he sustains creation. And there are those who bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and they become members of the kingdom of God by submitting to his rule and reign in their heart. But we know that we live in a rebellious planet. People have turned their backs away from the Lord, and there are still many who need to uh, submit their will to the will of God. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying that God's will and God's plan would have its way. We're praying, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's what we're doing when we pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Someone has said there are two kinds of people on the earth. Those who are in harmony with God's purpose and are willing to say, thy will be done, as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then there's those who say, my will be done. Ruth Graham Bell said at one point, I'm glad that God didn't listen to my foolish demands in my younger days when I insisted that God bend his will to mine. She said, I would have married the wrong guy at least 15 times. <laughs> what we are saying is that we trust so implicitly in our Heavenly Father that we will say to him, your will be done in my life. Your will be done. Verse 11. Now we move from the your wills and the your pronouns to the us pronouns. God's provision. Verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. You go from this supreme thing about God's will and God's kingdom and God's purpose to something so basic and mundane as bread. There's nothing more basic than bread. This request stands in the very middle of the prayer. It's so outstanding that some people have, uh, in the early Christian uh, community, uh, couldn't believe that that's really what it meant, you know, bread made of wheat and flour and, uh, and the stuff that sustains our physical life. And so they spiritualized it or they allegorized it and tried to make it think, uh, refer to the word of God or to the, the communion. And I think it's quite clear that what Jesus is saying here is that we can pray for something as basic as bread. I say that because of the context in this whole section. You remember in chapter 4, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, as Jesus is, is teaching, he's teaching about uh, giving alms to those who are in need. In other words, if somebody's hungry, you're supposed to feed them. And then as you move on, you discover in verses 16 and following, he talks about fasting. Uh, he's speaking of the, you know, withholding bread as a way of of uh, strengthening our spiritual life through a spiritual discipline. 
And then as you come to the end of chapter 6, he begins to talk about not worrying. And he says, what are you worried about? You're worried about bread and what you're going to wear and all that kind of stuff. Doesn't your heavenly Father know that you need these things? So all the way through from chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 6, the dominance of this concept of Jesus or God providing bread for our needs is there as a theme that goes through it. So I think it's quite clear that when Jesus said that we pray, give us this day our daily bread, he means food. He means what we need to eat. When you think about it, bread is tied to all of creation. There's no bread without a crop of wheat. There is no crop of wheat without rain, sunshine, and soil, and all of those in the right balance. Tip the earth just a little bit on its axis, and we face serious famine. What we are saying is that we believe this is our Father's world, and that he's in control, and that he is providing for us the basics of what we need. Give us today, this day, our daily bread. Not for this month, not for this year. Why? Why are we to pray daily for our bread? Well, perhaps it helps us to trust God daily, moment by moment. It calls me to recognize my dependence upon him on a daily basis. Give me what I need for today. And tomorrow I pray the same thing because I maintain this intimate relationship with the Lord. Notice what it says. Give us, plural, our today, our daily bread. There's a corporate acknowledgement that we share this need with everyone else and that we are part of the corporate of humanity and that this is not a selfish prayer. It's not where I say, I want mine and let everybody else for themselves. One of the challenges we face these days is the migration of people out of Africa because as climate change happens, the farming in the uh, sub-Sahara gets less and less productive and people are starving and so they move to uh, try to find a better place. And so all of this is tied together as we pray. When we pray for our daily bread, we're praying for those people who are fleeing starvation as well. Give us this day our daily bread, God's provision. Fourth, verse 12, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, I know that as you've grown up repeating the Lord's Prayer, you've begun to wonder, okay, do they say debtors? debts here? Do they say sin and sin here? Or do they say transgressions? And uh, it's interesting because in Matthew, Matthew uses the word for monetary debt, but it is also spirit. uh, It talks about the fact that we owe uh, a debt of forgiveness to others as well. And then Luke uses the term for sins and also the Greek word for the monetary debt that is used by Matthew in this text. And then if you look down at verses 14 and following, forgive those who have sinned against you in uh, the book of Matthew, there the word is transgression. So you've got all three words kind of bouncing about in this text. So I 
think it's not important that we pick one or the other. It seems as though the, the gist is that we are to acknowledge our sinfulness and the forgiveness that God has given to us and then acknowledge that there are others who may sin against us and we respond. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. There was a group of scholars in England who were uh, meeting to discuss the uniqueness of Christianity. And C.S. Lewis was supposed to be a part of that group, but he got stuck in traffic. And because he couldn't get to the group in time, they had gone ahead with the discussion. And finally, he arrived, and so they said to him, well, what do you say is the most unique feature of Christianity? He said, that's simple. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. That Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross, has given us forgiveness. The addendum to the prayer in verses 14 and 15 goes more into detail about this. But it says, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Is it true that if we don't forgive others, God will not forgive us? It's actually the other way around. One does not receive God's forgiveness as a result of forgiving others, but the reception of God's forgiveness and mercy moves us to be forgivers and the acceptors of others. Someone has said it would be a mockery to ask for God's forgiveness while we fail to forgive others. You remember the story that Jesus told when Peter said, how many times should we forgive people? Seven times? No, he said, no, 70 times 70. And then he told the story of the fellow who owed a big debt to his uh, boss, and his boss forgave that debt. And then he went out and had a fellow who owned him a little bit, and he refused to forgive him. And the, and the point of the parable was, if you have received forgiveness you will become a forgiver. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Finally, the final statement in the prayer is in verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. have to go back to the book of James to kind of put some perspective on this. Does God tempt us? If you read in James, he says, consider it pure joy, brothers, when you face trials, or some use the word temptations of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance finishes its work that you might be mature and complete. So we should... Embrace those testings and those temptations. But in verse 13, James writes this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by their own evil desires they're dragged away and enticed. Then after that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So how do we unpack that? Well, there's kind of two perspectives. There are trials, there are challenges in our life, which can lead us to, to uh, a, a, a way in which they become temptations. 
God does not tempt us, but he does test us. Who would ever say to the Lord, Lord, test me? We know that we don't like testing. But what this text is saying is that God can take us through the testings. And I know that he will not test me beyond what I am able to bear. And it is possible that we pray, Lord, deliver us from temptation. In other words, deliver us from the evil one. It's been rightly said that Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saints upon their knees. Our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, goes around seeking whom he may devour. But we can come to the Lord and say, Lord, protect us. There's a story of George Adam Smith, who was a a great preacher and an author. And he was mountain climbing with some people in the Alps. And he got to the top on the precipice and was impressed with the view. And so he walked out to the edge of the precipice and was looking across the, the vista in front of him when all of a sudden a strong gust of wind nearly blew him over the edge. And his guide cried out to him, Mr. Smith, on your knees, sir. The only way you're safe up here is on your knees. The only way we can be safe from the wiles of the evil one is that we continue to come to the Lord and say, Lord, protect us. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. In most recitations of the Lord's Prayer, it ends with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Not in the text. It was added by early Christians, but it is kind of a summary of what the prayer is all about. Praying that God's kingdom would come. Praying that his power would provide us with what we need on a daily basis. Provide us with protection. And that he might receive the glory. So as we pray, we pray to God, our Heavenly Father, our Daddy, our Abba. It's fun because when I go to my grandkids, having grown up in an Arab country, they call Daddy Baba. It's kind of an endearing term. When we come to the Lord with our prayers, we come and say, Abba, Baba, Father, Daddy. And we pray that God's purposes will be accomplished, that his good and perfect will will be made. And we pray that God will provide for our daily provisions, our basic human needs. And then we too, recognizing that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, we pray for forgiveness. And if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we pray for his protection from temptation and from the evil one. I trust that as you recite the Lord's Prayer, perhaps from time to time, and as you pray in your own prayer time, that you will understand a little bit more deeply how we are to pray based upon what Jesus uh, told his disciples there on the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your clear instruction about how we can come to you and lay before you all that's on our heart. 
And we can say to you, because of full confidence in your love, thy will be done. We can say we can trust in you and give thanks for what you do. Help us to learn to pray in a way which pleases and honors you. In Christ's name, amen.